0: we're in nehemiah this morning as uh, as nathan reminded us nehemiah chapter 9 and um, last week we we started to talk about the fact that the the physical building had t- taken place of of the the plan and the plot that nehemiah had hatched as he was in the court of king artaxerxes, artaxerxes and I came to him and those four months were spent waiting and planning and praying and preparing, and, and then he went into the king and he asked for his favor, he asked for his provision, his providence, his protection, and uh, after all these months as we followed the story, as we followed kind of Nehemiah's memoir, um, we've seen how he's rallied the troops, how he's overcome opposition and he's overcome intimidation and threats, and... He's organised the people, and they fought with with a weapon in one hand and a trowel in the other, and they started to rebuild Jerusalem. And they came to the place where they've they've rebuilt the walls. And we've taken this theme of of Nehemiah as a as a time of rebuilding, of restructuring after a time of exile. Um, and it kind of mirrors for many of us this last couple of years as we as we come back together and come into a time to to rebuild and restructure, and Nehemiah uh, did all of this, he led the people, he organized the rebuilding, the walls were rebuilt, the gates were rehinged, Uh, Jerusalem was restored, but the people needed more than that. He put people in governance and in oversight of the city, but then what really was needed was revival, was the revival of their hearts, was a, a rekindling of this faith community. It was okay to put all the structural things in place, but they needed needed a rekindling and a revival. And and last week we contemplated in chapters 7 and 8 of of how this started to happen. The people gathered as one man uh, before the water gate, and they called for Ezra, the priest, and they said, bring out the book, Ezra, bring out the word, the Torah. And Nine times in those chapters we read of the, of the Bible, or part of the Bible as we know it now, being brought out and being read to the people. And faith started to stir in them. Something happened as they heard the very words of God. And uh, they started to weep. They started to cry as they as they were touched by what they were hearing, by echoes of a voice from the past that they vaguely remembered. After all these years of exile, they remembered the words of God, the stories that they'd heard told by their fathers and their forefathers started to just shake them up and they started to weep as Ezra read the scriptures to them. We reflected last week of that need to come with a sense of awe and worship as we uh, open the scriptures and it's important that we understand them as well. And the priests and the Levites met with the heads of the families and they They taught them and they studied together so they could understand what they were hearing. They translated what was being taught and the people were deeply moved and revival started to to come. And we reflected last week also on the moves, historical moves of God where the word of God has come to the fore again, whether the Reformation with the likes of Sphingley and Melanchthon and Calvin and Luther, or whether it was John Knox and the Scottish Revivals or the Wesley Brothers and they're uh, spreading the word of God as they travelled 225,000 miles on horseback to preach over 40,000 sermons and uh, to establish this church. Whenever God moves, the word of God comes to the fore. People's hearts are softened again to what God is saying and moved. And the people here were moved to tears, and Nehemiah and Ezra had to instruct them and say, Don't cry. What you're hearing today is good news, and we are going to celebrate because it's the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Feast of the Booths, where they would build makeshift houses, little tents, take the sticks and the branches and the foliage, and they would live in them for a week, and they would remember what it was like to be in the wilderness, what it was like to have no home, what it was like to be traveling towards the promised land. And so this Feast of the Booths or the Feast of the Tabernacles as they understood what they were being taught and as they went away and they reconstructed that moment, God moved in a strange way and they were filled, the phrase that we read three times in the passage last week was they were filled with great joy and uh, great joy came over the people as they ate and they drank and they remembered God's faithfulness uh, to them in the wilderness. Now, we get to chapters 9 and 10, and we see a kind of a continuing move of God amongst the people, but now we find them weeping again. We find them, the Feast of the Tabernacles is finished, we find them putting on sackcloth and ashes and weeping and mourning, and we see an act of collective repentance and confession before God as the people gather and worship and reflect on their state and the state of the people of God, and where they find themselves there 's different seasons in every church life, in every faith community they 'd had a season of joy they 'd had a season of celebration they 'd had a, a season of singing and chanting and preaching the word and conference time convocation time they 'd had a great time, but now we see a very different season we are see- we see a season of mourning and lament and repentance and confession as the people gather. And churches do go through different seasons. I remember Eugene Peterson writing of his church. He'd, he'd uh, had a season of, of growth and blessing in the church in Maryland, in the States. He'd planted a church, it had grown, they'd built a building. Things had been going so well, and he just thought the trajectory would just keep on going. But then he said he entered into what he would refer to in his memoir as the Badlands. One day in one of his holidays, his vacations, he drove with his wife Jan from Maryland where they lived to Montana and they drove through the Dakota Badlands, this piece of uh, earth, this piece of land where there is nothing. There's no, there's no life, there's no, there's no, there are no people, there's just wilderness. And as he's driving his car through these bad lands, he thought, this is, this is like my church. This is like my ministry. This is like my life. Just a period of wilderness and difficulty and, and tra- travail and trouble. And uh, he went to his supervisors and he said, I don't know what to do. You know, I don't know what's happening. I don't know why things are so difficult. And, uh, and they gave him various ideas. But he knew that he just had to walk through and travel through, travel through the badlands. And uh, he said they lasted seven years, seven years of difficulty, seven years of challenge and travail, and then came out of that period of his life and came into another season. And I think there are seasons in, in churches, I think there are seasons in communities of faith that we go, sometimes we are full of joy and we're full of celebration and full of feasting. And sometimes, like at the start of chapter nine, we're more into a time of sackcloth and ashes and mourning and lament. And Each is a season that we have to recognise as part of our walk with God, and neither, it, and both are necessary at times in our lives. And also, uh, we see here just the sense, the sense of the sorrow of the people, and and also a reflection, I think, of what Paul writes to Timothy, in uh, in Second uh, Timothy four. Um, he says this to the young pastor. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of the appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. What this seasoned minister said to this younger pastor was, Timothy, there'll be times that are in season and there'll be times that are out of season. Uh, Jenny and I went down to St. Ives this Friday for a day, and it's out of season. Uh, it, was, it was raining part of the time. There weren't that many people there. It's very different to going to St. Ives in season. If you go to St. Ives in August, you can't move <laughs> for people and for the sun's shining and the shops are bustling and a very different feeling. Same place, same location, same geography but one was in season and one was out of season. And Paul said that it's like that with church and it's like that with ministry, but you're to preach the word in season and out of season. You're to live your faith in season and out of season. you to keep walking through, sometimes walking through the badlands. And as I see the start of chapter 9, I think, what what a switch from the festival of the booths, and you could hear the singing, you could hear the musical instruments, you could hear the, and see the feasting, and now there's mourning, and there's lament, and there's sackcloth, and there's ashes. But more than that, what the people are saying here, as they reflect on their circumstances, at the end of chapter 9, we see what they're saying about themselves. I've broken my glasses here, I've got a one stock glasses, Um <laughs> This is the only pair of reading glasses I've got. So if you think, what is that? It's, it's not some new trend. Um, it's, um, it's broken glasses, which are getting replaced, courtesy of Specsavers, but they're not quite ready yet. So I'll do my best. Um, so go ahead and laugh at these strange things. Um, and they say this is what they say about about their condition. This is the people. But see, this is verse 36 of chapter 9. We are slaves today. We are slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings that you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. And this is the confession of the people as they weep. They, they say that the land that you have promised to our forefathers and the fruit and the harvests is now being given away to foreign kings that you, God, have placed over us. We are in great distress. We are in, to use the language and vernacular of the message version, we are in trouble, God. We are we're slaves here again. We we are not masters of our own destiny, we are oppressed in our own land. And I don't know if if you've ever felt in a bad place, or if you've ever felt in distress or in trouble. And the great thing about our passage today is that it really does teach us that no one is exempt from the goodness of God. No one is exempt from the gospel of Jesus Christ You can never be in a place of distress that is beyond the reach of God. Now, you might sit here today and say, Well, you don't know my circumstances, or you don't know how I got to this place, or why I'm in such a mess, or why I'm in such difficulty. But the interesting thing about the people of God and Nehemiah in this period of time is that they are in distress because they deserve to be in distress. They are in distress because they are under the discipline of God. They are in distress and difficulty because they have messed up. And God has got his hand upon them, and you, God, have placed these kings over us. We're in the distress that we deserve because we've messed up. And throughout this passage and throughout chapter 9, what the people say is they say, God, you are right and you are just in the way you have treated us, and we are wrong, and we have been faithless. Those are words that you don't very hear very often, particularly if you're married. You're right, and I'm wrong. <laughs> They're sweet words when you do hear them. But the people of God recognized, God, you have always acted justly with us. You have always acted faithfully with us and towards us. We have been faithless. We have messed up and the worst kind of i think trouble to be in the worst kind of distress to be in is when you know you've caused it yourself when you know you've messed up yourself this is my fault this i'm in this cookers. It's my fault i've i've done i've done wrong i've messed up i've made a mistake i've and it's 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 less slightly less painful if you find yourself in distress that's nothing to do with you it's not your fault but the human condition, sadly, for every one of us, is that we are in a distress. <laughs> we are in a mess that is of our own making. It's called sin. It's, it's called the brokenness of, of humankind, and we are in this mess of our own making. It's our fault. <laughs> All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us reach God's standard. All of our righteous efforts all of our best efforts are not good enough and this is where the people of God find themselves they find themselves in a mess they find themselves in distress and the worst bit is they deserve it and they know it which is why they are in sackcloth and ashes and saying God we are so sorry will you help us and going into chapter 10 which David's going to deal with next week so I'm just laying the foundation so he can come and hit a home run next week, uh, they get to the point where they make a new covenant with God, where they make a new agreement, a new written agreement. They say, we're coming back to you, God. We're coming back, and we're re-establishing our community of faith, and we've rebuilt these walls, and we've rehinged these gates, and we've reordered our society, and we've put governance in place. But God, our hearts need to be returned to you, and we need a new covenant. We need to return to the Covenant, this agreement that you made with our forefathers, the promises you made for the harvest and the and the promised land, and all of these things you promised us, that now we find ourselves in slavery and distress and judgment. And so, what do they do? They then they start to pray. The Levites pray throughout uh, Nehemiah chapter nine is the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. It's the longest prayer in the Bible that's recorded, and they. They start to go back through a thousand years of history. They go back to the Exodus, 1400 BC. And they start there and they start to tell God and remind God of what He's done. And they go right up to the present day, about 400 BC, Nehemiah's time. And they recount a, hundred, a thousand years of what has happened. And starting in verse 6 of chapter 9. They start by saying who God is, they said blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessings and praise. You alone are the Lord, you alone are Yahweh, you are the God who said I am who I am. You are God and they are establishing who he is and then they reflect on his creator, uh, his creation, you made the heavens, even the highest heavens. And all their starry hosts, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to everything. The multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God. And then they go through and they start to recount. They recount Abraham. They recount the covenant that he made with God and that God made with him. You found his heart faithful to you. You made a covenant with him. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. And then in verse 9, they go on to say, You saw the sufferings of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry. They, they recount the story of the Exodus and the, and the Pharaoh. And they recount God leading them through the sea that we've been singing about this morning. And that they passed through it on dry land. And you buried the Egyptians in the sea. And then you led us through the wilderness. And you led us by a pillar of cloud. And you led us by a pillar of fire. And then you came to Mount Sinai. And you, and you gave us the commandments and the decrees that would establish your law for us. And then you set in place the Sabbath. And then you gave us bread from heaven, the manna. And you fed us in the wilderness. And you gave us water from the rock. And so they recount who God is and what God has done, they they worship God, they reestablish who He is, they remind themselves of His faithfulness through a thousand years, through generations. In verse 10 it says, you've made a name for yourself that remains to this day. You are God, you are Yahweh, you are the Creator, you are the Covenant God, you are the Righteous God. This is who you are God, this is who we are dealing with, this is who we are worshipping. And I love the sense as we worship this morning and we lift up and remind ourselves of who God is, that he is the one that wins the victory for us. He is the one whose name is above every other name. And when we worship God, we make him big, we magnify him. We remind ourselves of who he is. And that's what the Levites do as they stand before the people and as they repent and as they confess corporately But then what they are doing, really, they are establishing the character of God. And we see, we see throughout chapter 9, we see six pairs. We see six couplets. We see a pattern of uh, the people rebelling against God, which is where they find themselves now. And And then they recount God's response. Rebellion response. And that, happened six times in this chapter. I want to briefly take you through that because what the Levites are doing, they're saying, God, we've been here before. We've rebelled before. We've been in slavery before. What kind of God are you? What will you do in response to who we are and to what we've done and the distress that we find ourselves in? What kind of a God are you? How have you acted in the last thousand years? How have you responded when our forefathers messed up like we have messed up? And six times they go through these couplets. Our rebellion, God's response. Our rebellion, God's response. The sawtooth history of Israel. So verses 16 and 17, we see the first couplet. 16, but they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. That was what they did. That was how they acted. Even though you did all of these things, God... Even though you led them through the wilderness, even though you gave them food from heaven and water from the rock and led them through the Red Sea, even though you did all of this, they are forefathers. They became arrogant and they became stiff necked and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and they failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff necked in their rebellion, appointed a leader in order to return to the slavery. That's what they did. That was their rebellion. And how did you react, God, when they did that? But you are a forgiving God. You're gracious and compassionate. You're slow to anger. And you're abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies so then we read that's the first one that's what they did and that's how god responded and then we read through to verse 25 because verse 19 because of your great compassion you did not abandon them in the desert by day the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way that they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manner from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky. You brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites. You lived in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them. They captured fortified cities and fertile lands. They took all possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things. Wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. So we see they rebel, they become stiff-necked, they become disobedient. They commit awful blasphemies. But God, you were compassionate. You didn't abandon them in the desert. You provided for them. You guided them. That's how you acted in the past, God. A thousand years ago, this is what you did. And then we read the next couplet, 26 and 27, the same pattern. We go back to rebellion, but they were disobedient and they rebelled against you and they put your law behind their backs and they killed your prophets who admonished them in order to turn them back to you and they committed awful blasphemies. And so how did you react, God? You handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you, and from heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. So we go around the third time, the same cycle, they rebel, but you God, you're so compassionate and merciful, you sent them deliverers, you sent them people that would rescue them, and you brought them out safe again, even though they had rebelled. And then we go to the fourth couplet in verse 28. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And then they c- cried out to you again. And you heard from heaven, and in your compassion, there's that word again, you delivered them time time. After time. And then the fifth couplet, verses 29 and 30, we go round again. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly they turned their backs on you because became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit, you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to your neighboring peoples. In verses 30 and 31, but in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So this is what the Levites are doing. Six times they go back over a thousand years of history and they say god we are in distress again we have rebelled again we've messed up again we're in slavery again and god we're going to re-establish our covenant with you we want to come back to you god we want to make our hearts right with you now there's only two problems to this scenario in verse 32 they say look on." us with pity, God. Look on us with pity. Have mercy on us, God. The two problems are, first of all, one is their track record is not great. The odds are not good, are they? We'll write another covenant, God. We'll make another agreement with you. We'll put it in writing. We'll establish our hearts to follow you, God. What odds would you give them? Would you put money on their success? Six times, a thousand years. Is it going to be any different this time? And the other problem, the second problem with this scenario, is that we have to marry the mercy and the compassion of God with the justice and the righteousness of God. You, O God, are righteous. You, O God, are are just. You have treated us fairly, God. And yet, Lord, you are merciful and compassionate and kind, and you've not treated us as we've deserved. And how do we marry those two things? How do we deal with the tension of the mercy of God and the judgment of God? What do we do with this conundrum? And will it be any different this time as they come back to the covenant And as we reach the end of the Old Testament, we are in this tension. We are in this tension between the mercy and the judgment of God. The people are crying out to him. They're saying, God, we're in slavery and we're in distress. But then we come to the New Testament. And we come to the eve of Jesus' death on the cross. And we come to a moment where he takes the Passover meal and he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body which is broken for you. And then he takes the cup, which was one of the cups of, 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 the, of the meal that they were having, the Passover meal, and he lifts it up, this cup of wine, and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is a new agreement. This is a new covenant. This is the new covenant that Jeremiah wrote about when he said... The covenant will no longer be external. It will no longer be laws that are imposed upon you that you cannot follow, but it will be internal. I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will put my law inside of you. And it's the same description that's given by the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, where he says the same thing. I will give you a new covenant, a new heart, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. And so Jesus says, as he prepares to die on the cross, he says, the old covenant is gone. This is a new agreement now. All of those agreements that you signed and failed to keep again and again and again and again and again and again, again, now I'm bringing you a new covenant. And what this will do, it will marry my mercy and my righteousness. It will place me on the cross. I will die for the sins of the people. I will pay the price that is required by the judgment of God. And this is what Paul describes in in the book of Romans. When he writes in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 26, he says, We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we are justified freely by his grace. Through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So what Paul is explaining there to the Roman believers is that now Jesus, in this present day, he's going to marry justice and mercy. And all of those sins that God overlooked of the Old Testament followers, the time and again that he was compassionate and merciful and slow to anger, in his forbearance, he did not punish them as they deserved, but he knew that in Christ, this requirement of justice and mercy would be married on the cross. And so we come to the Feast of the Tabernacles again in John chapter 7. The Feast of the Tabernacles are being celebrated again just like in Nehemiah's day. And Jesus stands up at the Feast of the Tabernacles in John chapter 7. And it says he spoke out in a loud voice, and he said these words John seven thirty seven. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. We've come full circle. We've come to Jesus standing at the feast of the tabernacles saying, if you come to me, I will give you a new heart. I will give you my Holy Spirit. And out of you will flow these rivers of living water. It's not an externally imposed covenant that you will never be able to keep. It is an internally given, spirit-filled covenant agreement that has been paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. And Jesus said, come to me for mercy. Come to me for justice. I'm the one that will make you right with God. I'm the one that will forgive your sins. This is a new agreement. It's a new covenant that is paid for in my blood and in my righteousness. So as we follow these ancient believers... As we look at them as they put on the sackcloth and ashes, as they look back at their ancient history of a thousand years, as they recount the faithfulness of God, as they say, God, you've only ever treated us justly and righteously, as they come back to a place of reestablishing the covenant, we don't hold out much hope for them as they enter into the seventh attempt to follow God and to keep his laws. But as we fast forward to Jesus and the New Testament and the New Covenant, we must never cancel out the cross or diminish or minimize his mercy or discount his goodness towards us. So I don't care what position you find yourself in today or what has caused your distress or whether this mess is of your own making because the mess of our lives is of our own making. We are all sinners We are all falling short of God's glory and God's standard. And the only thing that will deal with that is belief and faith in Jesus Christ. It will marry his mercy and his justice. It will answer this ancient conundrum that the people suffered with for thousands of years when we received a savior that made a way for us to be made right with God. And the great news today is that this gospel is for every one of us. There is a teaching that the gospel, this good news, is just for people that don't know Jesus. We tell them and we want them to become Christians. But we need this gospel all of our lives. All of us as believers, we need this gospel. We need it preached. We need to believe it. We need to receive it and understand it and act upon it. So whether you've never made that choice to follow Jesus and to accept his forgiveness for you. You could do that for the first time today or whether you're an established believer of many years who's still in a mess and still in distress, you can come back to a God who is merciful and just, will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. We find in 1 John, don't we, that our trajectory as believers is that we do not sin. We should not sin. We move towards are sinning less but John said in full knowledge of the fact that we would continue to mess up if we do sin we have an advocate who stands on our behalf so I'd like to pray with us this morning and as Jesus stood and shouted these words come to me come to me if you're thirsty come to me if you're empty come to me if you need to be made right with God This is the covenant that we depend on. And each one of us can come afresh this morning to Jesus. And I'm going to invite you to come. I love that Julie Miller who picked it up song, Come ye weary. Come ye sinner. Come ye burdened. Come as you are. Just as you are, come to Jesus. Let's pray. And I'd love to pray for you this morning. Lord, we thank you for this invitation that you issued in a loud voice that we should come to you. I thank you, God, that you answered once and for all this tension between the mercy of God and the justice of God. And you have acted justly, God, and the punishment that should have been on us was placed on Christ. And so this morning, God, we want to receive that forgiveness. We want to receive that cleansing, that purification. And so I pray, Lord, for anyone in earshot of this message this morning that has never done that, that has never accepted the forgiveness of God, never come to Jesus, I pray that, Lord, if there is someone here today, Spirit, and that out of their bellies will flow rivers of living water, this infilling of the Holy Spirit, of new life, new covenant life, a new heart, God, a new spirit that you alone can give and place inside an individual. And if that's you, you could pray, just talk to God yourself. In your mind, you could say something like, dear God, please give me a new heart. Give me a new heart. Soften my heart, God. Give me a new spirit. Forgive me. Uh, Remove my sin from me. I trust in you, Lord Jesus, in your forgiveness and your death on the cross. Please change my heart and my life. And for every one of us who, like these ancient people, find ourselves in distress or in a mess, and even a mess of our own making, Lord, we pray, we thank you, God, that you are, as we've read over and over and over again, you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. We thank you, God, that your compassion reached its zenith on the cross as you looked down upon those that scorned and spat and shouted and screamed, and you said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I pray, Lord, Father, forgive us. We thank you, Lord, that we don't depend on an ancient covenant that we can't keep, but we depend on a new covenant which you kept for us and which you have prepared for us. So we will come to you afresh this morning, Jesus, and we will come and we pray that you will soften our hearts and allow us to follow you step by step in the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, that you are not finished with us yet. In Jesus' name, amen.